Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Self-knowledge in the spiritual life is absolutely critical. And uh, apart from it, you really don't have a sense of, of your need for grace and, and where you might need to open your life to the transformative power of grace. And so, I mean, the Enneagram does a great job of, of getting you in touch with it. We oftentimes tell people, here's how you know when we're getting close to your number is that when we when we start to teach it, you're going to start feeling this pit in your stomach and this feeling like someone has downloaded your personality somewhere into a server and you're reading it out loud. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick. Today on episode 15, I'm talking with my longtime friend Ian Cron about his latest book, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey. One of my favorite things to do is to introduce friends I know to other friends of mine who have not met one another. So on today's podcast, I hope to introduce Ian's writing and thought to at least a few who have never had the good fortune of reading one of his books or hearing him speak. So, Ian Morgan Cron is a best-selling author, nationally recognized speaker, Enneagram teacher, psychotherapist, Dove Award-winning songwriter, and Episcopal priest. His previous books include his novel, Chasing Francis, and the best-selling spiritual memoir, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me. In Ian's writing, speaking, music, and ministry, he draws on a wide array of disciplines, from psychology to literature to the arts— Christian spirituality, and theology, all to help people enter more deeply into a conversation with God and the mystery of their own lives. He and his wife, Anne, live in Nashville, Tennessee. In part one of my conversation with Ian, we discuss his new book, The Road Back to You, and how the Enneagram can help you gain self-knowledge, grow in compassion toward yourself and others, and how our Christian vocation is to become ourselves. So with no further delay, let's jump into my conversation, part one, with Ian Cron on Restoring the Soul. Ian Cron, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. It's, uh, it's a blast to be with you. How are you feeling about your book release coming up on, what, October 4th? Yes. I'm... Uh how do I feel about it? Breathless, um, harried, and excited, and, you know, all the stuff that comes with having spent a 
a long season of work and then letting it loose in the world and hoping that, you know, it does something that moves the needle in a, in a, just in a good direction for people. And, you know, so that, that involves, you know, lots of butterflies and, yeah. Well, congratulations. It's book number three for you. And I know it's not fair for us as men to use labor and giving birth analogies, but uh, I've written one book and this is number three for you. And it's a little bit like giving birth, that process of uh, you, you work hard and there's some pain involved and you're not exactly what's going to come out, but hopefully it's a baby. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So your first book was a novel, Chasing Francis. Uh, your second book was a memoir of sorts, as you called it, Jesus, My Father, The CIA, and Me. And this book has gone in a different direction. Um, it is The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey. What led you to go in that direction and to write a book about the Enneagram? People would think that I'm, I'm sort of, in terms of writing, I'm sort of a promiscuous when it comes to genre. You know, I kind of bounce around, but personally have experienced a great deal of a spiritual benefit from working with the Enneagram. And, and I kept hearing so many conversations about it. You know, people were always saying, oh, you know, you're a six or a five, referring to, you know, personality style numbers. And and then I began to, to think about whether I knew a title in the Enneagram world that was a primer, you know, something that was a beginner's guy that wasn't you know, so many of them are, are content-rich and really, really great books that are out there. But but most of them are also very, very long and, and can be dry. And so I thought, you know what, there's a kind of an opening in the line here to do something that would be really helpful to people and at the same time not be overwhelming or too technical for them. And you initially discovered the Enneagram out of your own personal vocational journey. When you were in a, a pastorate, you were disillusioned and confused, and you went through some spiritual direction. And you write in the book that you, you were in a season where you wanted to wake up and live an enlivened and enlarged life. Mm. How did the Enneagram help you begin to do that? Well, actually, I, I was first introduced to the Enneagram in 1992 when I was at Denver Seminary, just down the road from you. Uh, it was years later, after uh, departing the pastorate, that you know I really revisited it in in depth, you know, and it, it has enlivened and enlarged my life, if you will. I hope that people don't become fixated on the enneagram, as often happens. You know, they they become so enthusiastic about something and then take it and overreach with it, you know. But it's a great tool. You know, it's one of many great tools to help you on your own sort of spiritual path. I love the line you wrote in the book about about people who take a hold of it and, uh, you know, go in directions where it becomes the entire lens through which they see the world. You, you wrote something like, I am not a foamy mouth Enneagram zealot. Uh, I don't stand uncomfortably close to people at cocktail parties and tell them that I was able to guess their number based on their choice of footwear. Um, <laughs> so your, your book for readers who are familiar with your other books uh, has all the same wit and uh, humor as some of the other books, which is what makes this so delightful and easy to read. Well, thank you. I'm, uh, I, I wanted it to be accessible. And, and really, the goal was, could I write a book that gave you enough information about the Enneagram that it could change the relationship for the better in your life, 
And then you could just stop right there. You know, you wouldn't need to do anything more except say, wow, that, that's cool. I, I have a you know, fairly good understanding of the system and I've been able to apply it in my life and experience some benefit. But, I, you know, I don't really have time to go on and read all these other books. I don't really want to. So I, I was kind of writing it for that person or as a gateway drug to lots of other work if you choose it, you know, to right. be the, the path you want to go in. So let's go back to the starting blocks. And for listeners who may not be familiar with the Enneagram, can you describe it kind of from the 30,000-foot view? Sure. The Enneagram is an ancient personality typology that suggests that people uh, adopt one of nine basic or core personality styles in childhood. And... uh, Each of these styles, if you will, is interdependent or uh, with one another, but, you know, visibly different, right? The belief is, is that if you can identify what this personality style, your personality style is, which in essence is a, as you know, as a therapist, as a collection of adaptive strategies that help us get along in the world, but later in adulthood, start to cause some problems. If you can identify it, and when it's healthy and unhealthy, you can begin to make different choices in your life than when you're on automatic pilot, just kind of running in your personality with all of its repeating patterns and self-limiting and self-defeating ways of being in the world. That was actually a little bit of a cockamamie uh, description, but I think, I, think, I think you get the point. Yeah, I do. Thanks for for that overview. And I know that you actually do a day-long workshop on knowing your number, so helping people to identify which of the nine numbers they are. But can you do like a one- or two-sentence run-through of each of the nine numbers? Holy smokes. Um, Nope, no pressure whatsoever. Sure. Okay, so um, ones are known as the perfectionists, and... um, they have a need to be, you know, obviously to be perfect and to avoid blame or punishment. Uh, twos are called the helpers. Sometimes they're called the givers. They, they have a need to be needed. Um, and I'm a, I'm a two, that's as right. you know. That's right. So they have a, a need to be needed. And uh, threes are known as the performers or the achievers and they have a need to be successful and to avoid failure at all costs. And if, by the way, if they're not successful, they have a need to appear successful. Fours are known as uh, the individualists or the romantics. They have a need to be unique or, or special. Fives are known as the investigators and, or the observers, sometimes they're, they're called. And they have a need to understand or perceive. Sixes are the loyalists, and they uh, have a deep need to feel secure uh, and supported in the world. Sevens are known as the enthusiasts. They, they want to avoid pain and unpleasant feelings at, at all costs. Eights are known as the challengers, and they have a need to go up against uh, authority or power, I should say. They need, to, they need to go up against power. And nines are known as the peacemakers, and the, the peacemakers have uh, a deep need to avoid conflict and to 
protect and you know, sort of an inner sense of tranquility and peacefulness. And I know the answer to this question, but share with the listeners what number you are and what that looks like for you. Yeah, I'm a four, the individualist. Um, the individualist is a, uh, a person who fundamentally believes that there's something missing at their core that other people enjoy uh, and that until they find it, they'll not feel whole or fit in or belong in the world. Uh, fours are oftentimes artists. Many, many, many artists are fours. And if they're not artists, they always have some kind of hobby or thing that they do that gives uh, expression to their incredibly intense emotional uh, world and to their very rich imaginations. Uh, we really fear uh, abandonment. Uh, we want to find our ideal soulmates. We're, we're in this triad. Twos, threes, and fours are in this feeling or heart triad. And it's the most image conscious of the triads. And it's the most um, uh, relational, really. And, and so fours... For fours, you know, relationships, you know, occupy a central place in their lives. And what they're doing, because they're so image conscious, uh, is they're, they're, they're wanting to project an image of uniqueness and specialness to compensate for this missing piece or to um, atone for this missing piece inside them and to try and... Uh, uh, secure a place in the world for themselves. The problem is, is that they tend to become so unique, or their their expression of uniqueness or specialness actually works against their experiencing belonging in the world. And that's that's the irony of all these different types or strategies is they end up actually um, thwarting the very thing that uh, it seeks to 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 be or to do. So as you're talking about being a four, there's a lot of really, really rich information there. And it's also vulnerable information about, in the case of yourself, about what what your inner world is like and how you see the world. But unlike other uh, personality inventories, which just help clarify and describe, the Enneagram goes to a level beneath that, mm -hmm. and it's a spiritual tool. So with that description that you just gave of a four, which you are, how has that helped you as a spiritual tool, yeah. an emotional tool? Yeah. So unlike other, I mean, there's a lot of great personality inventories or instruments that are out there. Um, and you know, like the Myers-Briggs or, you know, the, 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 was it the big five or the five factor, um, uh, among others. The, I think what makes the Enneagram kind of special is, First, it, it, it really takes into account that the human personality is fluid, not static. That there are times when it's healthy, when it's unhealthy. Um, how we are under stress is different than when we're in a place of security. The personality is adaptive. And so it, it takes all that into consideration and uh, accommodates that, that truth. Um, for me as a four... It exposes, well, actually for every number, it also exposes, the Enneagram also exposes how, not only what we're like when we're 
like I said, healthy, but also the dark side, you know, that the, the Enneagram makes it clear that what's best about us is also what's worst about us, right? What, what, what is a blessing is also a blight, potentially. So as a four, for example, um, you know, I really struggle with envy, right? And which makes sense, because I, I see that other people's lives, uh, or I perceive other people's lives as being happier and more uh, and more normal than than mine, and I, I just, I, boy, I just, I long to to have that kind of completeness, that experience of completeness in my life. And when I'm in a good space, I'm I'm really experiencing what's called equanimity, right? Which is balanced emotions, because fours tend to be just a storm of different emotions. As a, as one friend of mine says, you have more emotions in an hour than I have in a week. <laughs> So, um, so that's just one example. So the, the Enneagram is a spiritual tool says, look, you're both beautiful and you're broken. And uh, here's what uh, you can do. Here's a growth path for you to become your best and truest self. And that is what's so cool about it is, again, compared to other personality uh, assessments, which can be very, very helpful, this describes the brokenness and the beauty and the path so that it really becomes an opportunity for people to grow in their self-knowledge and therefore to grow as a person. Right. And I think that's really important. I mean, self-knowledge in the spiritual life is absolutely critical. And uh, apart from it, you really don't have a sense of, of your need for grace and, and where you might need to open your life to the transformative power of grace. And so, I mean, the Enneagram does a great job of, of getting you in touch with it. We oftentimes tell people, here's how you know when we're getting close to your number, is that when we, when we start to teach it, you're going to start feeling this pit in your stomach and this feeling like someone has downloaded your personality somewhere into a server and you're reading it out loud uh, or hearing it read out loud. And you're going to feel possibly a little ashamed, uh, wincing a little bit. Uh, because you're you're going to hear, you know, what it's like to live in your skin, and you're like, man, someone's been reading my mail. It's not it's not always very comfortable. Yeah, that happened to me two, almost two years ago. Next month, uh, where I first heard you teach about the Enneagram for the first time, you and your co-author Suzanne Stabile, mm -hmm. co-authoring the Road Back to You and Enneagram Journey, and in that workshop, I had those exact feelings: mm -hmm. feeling exposed, feeling vulnerable. And uh, Julianne had the same reaction, and it was through that day of teaching that, that the Enneagram, I, I can literally say this, it changed our marriage. It changed our acceptance of one another and our capacity to love one another. So I'm a, a huge fan, not only of your book, but of the Enneagram as a spiritual tool. I want well, to come yeah, back to yeah. something. Go uh, ahead. I was just going to say, uh, Annie and I had the precisely pre precisely the same experience. I mean, the Enneagram was was a, a game changer for us as well. And I'm talking about at year 28. And I'm a therapist. I mean, you'd think that I would have, you know, probably had that marriage thing down or something. I don't know. But, but man, I'll tell you what. It accomplished so much in a short period of time and opened us up to a level of compassion with each other that we'd never experienced before. Yeah, and, th and that's not hyperbole. I... I um have seen that in, in you and Annie, and I've seen it in my own marriage with Julianne. So if there's folks that are listening who you want to go deeper in your marriage, I would encourage you as a couple 
making sure to buy multiple copies and not just share one, but <laughs> as a couple to, uh, to get a copy of The Road Back to You and see how it impacts your marriage. I want to go back to this uh, issue you brought up about self-knowledge and how self-knowledge can expose our need for grace. There's a tension for many people, many followers of Jesus, between knowing God and knowing themselves. And you, you wrote a lot about that, including your own thinking, but sharing different quotes about this tension between knowing God and knowing yourself. Can you comment on that? Sure. I mean, you know, especially when I was uh, a kid growing up in sort of a Christian tradition— I'd say that, you know, going to counseling or spending time in self-reflection to figure out who you are, what what's best about you, what's what what most needs attention. Um, these things were kind of discouraged. Uh, they were, you know, we were taught that they were kind of like uh, being self-absorbed or uh, egocentric, uh, rather than saying, "No, this is a terribly important thing." Calvin, I believe, opens the institutes with that amazing sentence. Uh, apart from from knowledge of God, there, you know, apart from self knowledge, there is no knowledge of God. I remember reading that and being stunned. And I think what he's saying is, look, if you if you're not aware and know your, if you don't know yourself deeply and you're not aware of your 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 need for grace, then you're kind of in big trouble. You know, you, you won't understand the vastness and the beauty and the love of God un, unless that's the case, unless you know what's happening uh, inside of your heart and your mind. Yeah, and for you and I who are both therapists and, and you're a, a priest and a musician and you wear all these different hats as teacher, we've both seen the effect of what happens when people don't have self-knowledge. Oh, yeah, they run on autopilot and they bang guardrail to guardrail. And they keep making the same mistakes over and over again in their jobs and their marriages with their kids. They don't know why. They're frustrated. Um, and, you know, they're, they're not able to live uh, a really, you know, a full life, you know. I mean, they're just kind of grasping around the dark, trying to, hoping they're going to find a switch somewhere to turn the lights on. But, as you know, it takes some work and some courage to to develop self-knowledge. Yeah, self-knowledge is part of uh, that enlivened and enlarged life that you wrote about in the book. Mm -hmm. And so much of my story was wondering where the abundant life was that Jesus spoke about, that life to the full. But uh, it wasn't until many, many years, until I was a follower of Jesus, about 15 years to be precise, that I began to develop self-knowledge, mostly through my own brokenness. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I would say, and, and I, this is going to come off as being, you know, a little uh, iconoclastic, but I was raised with this sort of belief that I was supposed to be like Jesus. You know, you're supposed to look like Jesus, be like Jesus. And I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that's really not what God wants. <laughs> you know? God actually wants me to look like me. Um, mm. Th Thomas Merton once once said that to be a saint is to become myself. And I think what he's saying there is, is that we were placed here to be who we are. And when we are who we are, it delights God. And what the Enneagram does, by the way, is try to help you see that um, who you are is kind of buried underneath this thing called personality. 
we don't want to get rid of personality, obviously. You need it to get around in the world. You know, We don't want to delete your personality and replace it with a new one. That's not even possible. What we really want to do is disidentify with those parts of our personalities that are so self-limiting and that just cause us problems over and over and over again in relationships and in, in life in general. So let me ask you, uh, and we've actually had this this conversation many times over the years, but for the person who says the real me, I don't know who I am, and uh, the real me is buried, um, what would you encourage somebody to do to begin to discover who they are? I mean, starting with reading your book. (laughs) Well, you need somebody in your life who can help you jump into the mystery of who you are because you need someone who can stand at a distance uh, outside of your mystery and reflect back to you what they see and what's what's happening. So I, I'm a big believer in counseling and spiritual direction and being in relationship with someone who can walk you into the journey of, of, of knowing yourself, of understanding your history, how your history remains um, active in the present moment. And yeah, to... Re- understand the unique fingerprint that that God has given you in the errand, maybe even, that God has sent you to this earth to fulfill. I love that. I've I've heard you use that before, that that God gives us all an errand to run. Say more about that. I try to be careful with that because I I always worry that, that people think there's some particular one thing that they're supposed to do in the world, and they've got to find it, and they've only got so much time. <laughs> a a prayer for Owen Mead, yeah, kind of singular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it's really, the truth is, is that um, I, I think that the errand, in fact, that we are sent here on is, in many ways, to become ourselves and to really move toward uh, a deeper and richer unitive knowledge of God, you know, in, even in our, our frailty and brokenness. And, you know, I always think to myself that as a life goal, if I could just learn to love myself and believe that God loves me, like that would be an amazing feat. And if I could learn to, as a result, to love others, I mean, that would be an amazing feat, that I could see a growth line a positive growth line, that would be wonderful. So all the things like, you know, I got to go save another country or I got, yeah, those things are terribly important. I'm not, I'm not diminishing our need to be engaged in the world. But if you could really learn to love yourself, to believe that you're loved and lovable, and then therefore to, to go out into the world and love it, that alone is, is the errand maybe that we're sent on. Wow, that is that is so rich. Uh, it sounds so simple, but not simplistic. Uh, and the, you know, the name of this podcast is "Restoring the Soul," and I, I define a restored soul as a greater and freer capacity to love God and love ourselves. And then, out of that, there's an overflow of loving others. But oftentimes, uh, particularly the tradition that we've come out of, faith-wise, there's this emphasis first on loving others, doing for others, serving and loving God is defined by, you know, getting knowledge about the Bible and doing more prayer and engaging in certain activities. But but you're talking about something far more deep. And as a follower of Jesus for 
literally for decades, it's pretty, um, pretty stunning to hear you say that if I could just do that, but how honest, and I'm sure that countless people, including myself, will identify with, yeah, that's, that's just what I struggle with. Well, you know, it's so interesting. We were at a, I said, a, the other day was my birthday about two weeks ago. It's Annie. Happy birthday to you. Yes, 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 yes. Anyhow, we, we, um, we were at dinner uh, with six or seven friends, and one of them, who's a great guy, just said, so what have you learned this year? Like, what, what, what have you learned? What has God sort of revealed to you this year? And I, I, could, I could answer it instantly. It was that, you know, here I am, I'm in my 50s, and I, I realized just how insecure and frail I am. Hmm. And uh, that I, I just was surprised by my frailty and my insecurities. And in some ways, I came to recognize just how little I know about loving others. And, and the word I guess I would use is compassion. You know, the, the compassion that I have for others is at times um, wanting. And now when I say all that, it sounds like I'm kind of being a bummer and I'm, I'm really kind of being overly self-critical. But, but actually, I don't feel at all ashamed or um, n- you know, negative toward myself because that's the truth. I mean, I, I've sort of gotten to a place in my life where I don't do that as much anymore. You know, I'm just kind of go, oh, OK, so there it is. Um, and so I feel like the rest of my life should be dedicated to that, as I just said, those that pursuit of loving and being loved and and expressing in particular compassion for others and for the fact that everybody is suffering really i mean we we all suffer all the time really i don't know if at any given moment i can say to you i feel completely at home in the world and and i think that's the absolute i mean i just think suffering is at its base level, is not at home in the world in some way. And, I mean, so to remember that and to carry that knowledge so that you instinctively extend compassion, which is to look into another person's eyes. I mean, we think of compassion as, okay, I'm going to, I'm in a place of uh, more wholeness, reaching down to someone who has less wholeness, Right. But really, compassion is the ability to look into another person's eyes with mutuality and say that in me, which is alone and knows sadness, resonates and knows about the aloneness and sadness that you feel as much as I do. And that, therefore, gives me compassion because I know that you know what I know about me. You know what I mean? Like it's that's real compassion, I think. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.